Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to AccessibleWorld.org, to our auditorium for our special program series. And we want to welcome back a very dear friend, uh, Edwin Cooney uh, from California, a student of history, he says, but he's far more than that. He's very knowledgeable about, about history. It's been historically referred to as the Noble Experiment. Officially, it was called a prohibition against the sale, manufacture, and transportation of intoxicating liquors. The accompanying legislation was called the Volstead Act. Prohibition went into effect on January 16, 1920, and ended on December 5, 1933, amidst the Great Depression. Whether or not they drink or uh, drank, most Americans realized that the noble experiment was at the most only a temporary success. How and why did we Americans do this to ourselves? Who brought prohibition about and why? Why did we think we didn't want to drink and then proceed not only to uh, break a federal law or statute, but deliberately violate the Constitution of the United States. These are just some of the questions history student Edwin Cooney will explore with the Accessible World audience. Your questions and comments are not only welcome, we need them. And let me um, unlock the uh, keyboard and we'll, we'll bring Ed on here in a moment. It's my great privilege and honor to introduce our dear friend, Ed Cooney. Ed, the microphone is yours. Hello, Bob. Hello, everyone. It's only been a few decades since one of the most popular forms of entertainment was jokes about drunkenness, inebriation, if you will. Jack Benny's Phil Harris, Foster Brooks' Drunken Routines, uh, Dean Martin, Henny Youngman, were all known for drunk jokes. It probably wasn't until the 1970s when, when there was a lot of publicity about the tragedy of accidents involving children and the formation of Mothers Against Drunk Driving that that um, inebriation humor fell off. Uh, my favorite story was about the uh, drunk driver going the wrong way down a one-way street and the policeman pulls him over and asks him where he thinks he's going and he says, well officer, I, 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 I don't know, but wherever it is I'm late, everybody's coming back. And then, of course, there was the observation by Dean Martin. He said that he'd run into um, Pat Boone just a couple of days before. And he shook hands with Pat, and his whole right side sobered up right away. And Henny Youngman chimed in with, um, my father was the town drunk. And he said, that's, no so, that's not so bad, but New York City? So, as I say, jokes about inebriation were a part of everyday life uh, for at least uh, a lot of the time that I was growing up, and I suspect many of you in the audience remember jokes like that, and we laughed. 
But things change, and things invariably may even recycle. One never knows, does one? I want to talk tonight about prohibition, and first of all, let me say I thank Ruth Ann, Bob's wife, for suggesting the subject, and I'm happy to accommodate what little I know. Uh, did a lot of research, probably missed some things I shouldn't have missed, but I have what I have, and we'll go from there. I first of all want to talk a little bit about America before Prohibition. And then I'll talk about the socio-political forces behind Prohibition. Thirdly, we'll discuss the adoption of the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act, which supported it. Then we'll go into the enforcement of Prohibition between January the 16th, 19, actually it was the morning, of, it was midnight at 17th, January 17th, 1921, and December the 5th of 1933. And then we'll talk about the repeal, and the people and some of the forces behind the repeal. Of course we look at history through our own perceptions and the things that we experience. We, we could hardly do otherwise. Therefore, when somebody, say, somebody says, how, how could they have done this to themselves? We say that from the perspective of today and the, things that, the many things that we have to depend on. But America, a hundred years ago, was a very, very different place. There wasn't the travel, the communication, the medical sciences. Most men and women worked very hard every day. And when their work was done, of course they sought relaxation and safety. And increasingly in the late 19th century, especially in the larger cities, there was the saloon. And in fact, back then, saloons used to encourage people to come in, even during their lunch hour, not that a lot of people had lunch hours, but some did, and they would provide free lunch if you'd come in and drink their liquor. America was a nation of approximately 76 million people at the turn of the century, uh, 1900. By 1910, the population would be 400, and, the population would be 92 million, 407,000. And we wouldn't pass the 100 million mark in population before 1920, before 1915 when we would register 100,546,000 people. And by 1920, the year we adopted Prohibition, we were up to 106,461,000. Now, consider that today, the number of people living in the United States 
is about, this is a, uh, a guesstimation as of, the, as of 2008, 303,500,000 people. So we have more than tripled since 1920 in the number of people. Now, why is that relevant? It's relevant because of where the people lived, how they made their decisions, what affected them. 90% of the American people at the turn of the century, at the time of Prohibition, worked on the farms. They knew little of the American city, of the forces that were, that were growing in the American city. Over 90% of the American people were Protestant. Upwards of 95% were Protestant. And their opinion of the Irish, Central and Eastern European immigrants flooding into the port cities of Boston, New York, Philadelphia. And of course there were large Asian populations flowing into Los Angeles and San Francisco. It was very negative because they didn't know them. Now, I want, to take for I want to take just a moment also and talk a little bit about how laws were passed. I'm not going to go into great detail, but there's something that you need to keep in mind. I remember um, once hearing um, an interview with the late Chief Justice Earl Warren, and he was asked what the most important piece of legislation, or that, I'm sorry, boy, I'll tell you, there's some people that love that phrase. What was the most important decision that the court made? And he said, Baker versus Carr. Baker versus Carr was in 1964, and what it did was it ordered state legislatures to form their representation in their districts by one man, one vote. In many of the states, Georgia, for example, increasingly more people lived in Atlanta. But the state legislature was proportionally in favor of the rural counties. So rural mores were increasing, you know, stayed important even when the population was changing. So, it was possible to pass laws that were not likely to represent the needs of all of the people. Now the next question, of course, is what were the forces, the socio-political forces behind the passage of the 18th Amendment to the Constitution. The major social force was the call for reform. The industrial age really took off at the close of the Civil War. And with the industrial age and the development of so many abuses, various reform groups began to establish themselves. And increasingly the era became known as the progressive era. There were movements in the cities to combat disease and slums and unsafe working conditions. And this progressive era even encompassed some very rural, very traditional, very conservative ideas. Among them, of course, would be 
the idea that everybody would be safer in America if we didn't drink. The second major force behind the adoption of the 18th Amendment was the Protestant Church. As I say, well over 90% of the American people were Protestants. Now, evangelicals had a tendency to favor the prohibition of liquors. These would be Methodists, Baptists, Disciples of Christ, Congregationalists. The more liturgical religions, such as um, Episcopalians, um, German Lutherans, opposed it. It wasn't part of their feeling. It wasn't part of their need. And in fact, these people very often saw drinking as part of their culture. It wasn't about getting drunk. It wasn't about shirking their responsibilities. It was part of what they'd lived with all of their lives. But the Protestant church, because again, upwards of 96, 97% of the American people were Protestants, had a strong hold on these rural legislatures. Now, I've talked about the socio-political and religious forces that were behind the movement for prohibition. Let me take a minute and talk about the two major political forces behind prohibition. First was an organization called the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the WCTU. It was founded to, com to combat the influence of alcohol in society. Its first president was Annie Wittenmeyer. And Annie Wittenmeyer had been involved in social concerns all of her life. Uh, she'd been in such social causes as underprivileged children in the big cities. She concerned herself with the fate of wounded Civil War veterans. She dedicated herself to war orphans and widows. She went into hospitals to study the diets that the patients were, were provided. And of course, she was very much involved in the uh, Women's Missionary Society. The WCT was founded, as I say, in 1873, and by 1879 it had grown to 1,000 chapters throughout the United States. And this was basically throughout rural America. In 1979, the corresponding secretary, Ann Willard, became president of the WCTU. And from there, she went on to establish the Women's National Council, which was dedicated to finding a worldwide WCTU, which was founded in 1883. And she worked in these two organizations between 1883 and 1890. Now, it's important to draw a distinction between the WCU's mission and the next organization I'm going to mention. The WCTU was not only in favor 
of monitoring or, or was not only in favor of, of, of stopping drinking, it had a number of social, other social uh, obligations as well. Its purpose was to secure for all women above the age of 21 years the ballot as one means for the protection of their homes from the, from the devastation caused by legalized traffic and alcohol. So they voted the, the, the rights of women to vote with their urgency, their need to protect their families. And this was a counter to some of the anti-suffragette um, expressions that were being put, put forth by men who said, you know, urged women to be suspicious of, of the suffragettes. So, as I say, the WCTU was not only dedicated to stopping alcohol or the transportation and sale of alcohol, it was dedicated to the betterment of women. Now, the second major organization that came into existence in the 1890s was the Anti-Saloon League. It was founded by William Hyde Russell of Oberlin, Ohio in 1893. It went national in 1895. It moved to Washington, D.C., and then back to Westerville, Ohio, shortly after the beginning of the century. In fact, and keep in mind, America was very much a nation of small towns. Westerville, Ohio, which was the headquarters of the Anti-Saloon League, became the first small town in America to have a post office, a first-class post office, because they be began in about 1908, 1909, to ship out over 40 tons of mail per month. Now, of course, what was their strategy? The strategy was single-issue politics. They weren't liberal. They weren't conservative. They weren't Republican. And they weren't Democrat. Their national superintendent, is what he was called, and their, their chief lobbyist in Washington, was a gentleman by the name of Wayne Bidwell Wheeler. He was born November the 10th of 1869. Uh, got his law degree from Oberlin College in 1897. Now, when he was a boy, when he was a lad, he was injured in a road accident of some, of some kind involving um, a drunk driver. It wasn't an automobile. I'm sure, it was a, I'm sure it was a wagon. I don't know the details. But he suffered a leg injury, and he never forgot it, and he never let anybody forget it. He was the superintendent, or the um, he was the superintendent of the Anti-Saloon League from 1908 until his death in 1927. Now, his first major victory—it's kind of interesting—was the defeat of Governor Myron T. Herrick of Ohio in the 1905 gubernatorial election in, that, election in that state. And it's very interesting because Myron T. Herrick's lieutenant governor was a man whose name some of you may have heard. His lieutenant governor was the affable Warren Ganelia Harding. 
So Herrick was defeated, and the W and the in the Anti Saloon League was was often it was often running. Now, single issue politics is intra party. He wanted majorities in both parties. And keep in mind, I've already mentioned the way that legislatures, despite the fact that there were more people in cities, the way that the rural people kept their influence in these various legislatures, he started at the grassroots. Congressmen would go to churches, church suppers, and Sunday schools, and Chamber of Commerce meetings. And the idea that alcohol was poisoning America was pounded into them constantly. Some said that Wayne Wheeler controlled two presidents in the six Congresses. Actually, you know, I tried to figure out which two presidents he could possibly have controlled. Um, can't imagine that he controlled Theodore Roosevelt. And it's hard to believe that he controlled Woodrow Wilson. It's possible that the two presidents he controlled were Taft and Harding. But even then, it, I think it's slightly questionable. And he had such congressional influence that he was able to pass out patronage the congressman he helped get elect would make sure that a member of the anti saloon league got a post office position or maybe his his company got a road contract so there was plenty of patronage for those people who towed the line of the anti saloon league now there are a couple of factors that also came into play. One, of course, was America as, as a country removed from Europe. We were very reluctant to get into World War I. We wanted to hoe in our own garden. And when we finally were forced to enter World War I, the Anti-Saloon League and other groups used our reluctance and our anger and our frustration to pass the 18th Amendment to the Constitution. Beer would be called Kaiser Brew because many of the saloon keepers in Cincinnati and, and Chicago and other small towns were basically, and, and, and in Milwaukee, were of German and Austrian extraction. By the time we were involved in the war, 19 of the 48 states, consisting of more than half of the population, were already dry. The 18th Amendment was passed by the House of Representatives on December the 17th of 1917, and by the Senate the following day. Now, just a moment about what it takes to pass a constitutional amendment. It takes a two-thirds vote in both houses of Congress. And incidentally, the president plays no part in it. The president can't veto, can't, doesn't sign and can't veto a constitutional amendment. Once the bill, or once the constitutional amendment is passed by the 
Congress, it goes to the states for ratification, and it, it requires three-fourths of the states. As I say, it was ratified by the Congress as late as December the 18th of 1917. And on January the 16th of 1919, the amendment had passed. It was ratified. Now, I want to take just a minute to um, explain that a, an amendment itself, in order to be effective, has to be, has to be supported. There has to be legislation that makes it active. It's only a statement. And so therefore, the, um, the amendment was, of course, supported by what's called the Volstead Act. The Volstead Act uh, was named after the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Andrew Volstead of Minnesota. He wrote the legislation that would uh, support the um, 18th Amendment, although many people say the person that actually wrote the legislation was Wayne Wheeler of the Anti-Saloon League. Uh, I want to read for you, because it's very short, the 18th Amendment to the Constitution. Again, remember that it was, it was ratified on January the 16th, 1919. And here's how it reads. Section 1. After one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within, the importation into, or the exportation thereof from the United States and all territories subject to the jurisdiction thereof for, bev for beverage pur purchases is hereby prohibited. Section 2. <clears throat> the Congress in the several states shall have concurrent power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. And section three, and this is the most interesting section of the, of the, um, of the uh, amendment. This article shall be inoperative unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution by the legislatures of the several states as provided in the Constitution within seven years from the date of its submission hereof to the states by the Congress. That was the first time the Congress had ever put a deadline on passage of this amendment. Now, I don't know whether that was, whether that was to appease the members of some members of Congress or exactly what it was, but it was it was put there. And in fact there was a, a case before the Supreme Court, Dillon versus Gloss, Gloss that challenged that deadline and, and the and the Supreme Court upheld the deadline in nineteen twenty one. 
course, the enforcement of the amendment, as I mentioned a moment ago, was the, the major instrument for enfor uh, enforcement was, of, um, was the Volstead Act. Now, the purpose of the Volstead Act was, one, to prohibit intoxicating beverages. Two, to regulate the manufacture, production, use, and sale of high-proof spirits for other than beverage purposes. To ensure an ample supply of alcohol and to promote its use in scientific research and in the development of fuel, of dye, and of other lawful industries. Further, no person shall manufacture, barter, transport, import, export, deliver, or furnish any intoxicating liquor except as authorized by this act. And, in and here is another important factor. An intoxicating liquor was defined by the Volstead Act. And remember, it's the Volstead Act. I'm emphasizing this for a reason, it's going to, because it's going to be important later. An intoxicating liquor, it, it was defined by the thing. An intoxicating liquor was any beverage containing more than 0.5% of alcohol. Now, many people who thought that the alcohol content could have been larger because there's no way you can get even mildly high on 0.05%. On so many people felt that that was especially punitive. And uh, many also would, would um, comment that if they, they'd made it higher, they wouldn't have had the trouble that they got into. Here's, an here's another interesting thing. Doctors could prescribe medicinal alcohol. Uh, in fact, there was a protest in 1921 saying that Congress was hardly in a position to legislate what legislate uh, medical prescriptions, and of course, such legislation was thereby halted. <clears throat> now let's talk about the enforcement of the. It's signed into. It's it's become law. The Volstead Act has. It was initially um, vetoed by President Wilson because it interfered with some legislation. Uh, regulating uh, alcohol that he had um, running during World War I. He vetoed it, but Congress passed it over his veto. And so the Volstead Act went into effect on January the 17th of 1920. Now, there were three administrations that would enforce the 18th Amendment and its accompanying Volstead Act. The first, of course, was the Harding administration. There really hadn't, the government hadn't 
thought this through. This was the this is actually the first massive what conservatives today like to call social engineering in the history of the country. Never before had the had the federal government, not even the adoption of the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, never had had had, had the federal government passed a program that it would be responsible, a social program, that it would be responsible for managing. And the Volstead Act, the 18th Amendment, was such a piece of legislation. In fact, and it was decided that the government agency that would, that would orchestrate it would be not the Department of Justice, be under the Treasury. And the part of the Treasury Department that would be primarily responsible would be the Internal Revenue Service. Now, in May of 1920, the Harding administration was faced with... 1921, I'm sorry. The Harding administration... faced the responsibility for um, enforcing the act in a way that not even the Wilson administration had because it was a new administration after the war. The Republicans had come to power offering a return to normalcy. President Harding asked two members of the cabinet, and by the way, my sources don't tell me which two members of the cabinet, and and an assistant secretary to look over the situation to decide how they were going to um, administer the program. As I said, they put it under the Department of the Treasury, kept it under the Department of the Treasury, and they called it the... they, they, called, it the, they called it the... The, um, the Prohibition Bureau. And the cabinet member most responsible for it was, was the assistant secretary of the treasury. Not the secretary, but an assistant. And there would be five assistants to the secretary of the treasury between 1921 and 1925. Further, the Harding administration was, were hardly the people to enforce prohibition. Because like their fellow citizens, President Harding, his good friend Harry Doherty, who was his attorney general, And many other members of the Harding administration loved to drink. There was beer, there was bathtub gin available at the White House. And just about every night during the Harding administration, uh, there were late night poker games. Um, Second, the Harding administration interested in foreign commerce, wanted to increase the potency of the merchant marine. And the merchant marine ran into trouble with the, with the, with the prohibitionists when it was discovered that liquor was being served on board U.S. ships that were going from New York, say, to Europe. And there was much squabbling during the Harding administration as to who was going to be responsible for correcting that situation. So, as 
I say, the, the, the administration of prohibition was a nightmare. Harding died on August the 2nd, 1923, and Calvin Coolidge became President of the United States. And in 1925, he appointed as Assistant Secretary of the Treasury a former General of the Army by the name of Lincoln T. Andrews. Now, General Andrews, as Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, sought to consolidate the enforcement arm of the Treasury Department. It was divided into three. There was Customs, there was the Coast Guard, and there were provisions of the, um, of the prohibition of the prohibition unit. Um, the prohibition unit had created 25, in, uh, I'm sorry, 24 enforcement districts in the United States, and these were people that would hire police, hire um, hire agents within the states to enforce the law. Andrews testified in 1927, or 1926, how difficult this was. When he came into power, when he came into the responsibility, there were only 170 men in the whole Customs Bureau. 170 men to guard the, to, to guard the uh, uh, borders of, the border from, from the Atlantic to the Pacific of Canada and from the Gulf to the Pacific of, of New Mexico. That, that's how, how few there were. Furthermore, there were problems with the, in the administration because many of these, many of these um, agents responsible for enforcing prohibition um, couldn't pass civil service examinations. There were 148 convictions of professional agents a violated prohibition between 1922 and 1926. Federal convictions, people charged, just citizens being charged with violating prohibition, uh, was, okay, at the end of the first year, in 1921, was 17,962. And that was as of June 30th, 1921. By June the 30th of 1928, there were 37,000 convictions a year. So enforcement was constantly a nightmare. I mean, it was, it was almost impossible. Then, of course, there was the problem of, of increased gangsterism. Americans just weren't paying attention. They wanted their liquor. 
especially in the large cities with its heavily ethnic populations. And you had the Al Capones in Chicago and New York. You had the Tom Dennisons in Omaha, Nebraska, and the Bugsy Morans also competing with Al Capone. And of course, this invariably meant gang wars. And the costs to enforce prohibition were way beyond what was expected. In 1921, it was thought that perhaps it would cost annually $6 million to enforce prohibition. That's all. By 1928, the figure by 1928, the figure went up to $28 million annually. And by 1930, the guesstimate was that it would cost about $300 million a year. Now, in 1927, they passed the National Prohibition Act, which changed the prohibition unit to the National Prohibition Bureau, which upgraded it. And they put it right under the Treasury Secretary. And it was resigned, and the, and the position was taken over um, by Assistant Secretary uh, Seymour. Seymour Lohman in 1928. <clears throat> the question of prohibition became a political issue for the first time in 1928. 1928 was the year that Al Smith, governor of New York, a Roman Catholic, a wet, was the Democratic candidate for president, and Herbert Hoover was the Republican candidate. Hoover understood during the course of the campaign that it was difficult to administer prohibition. And once he was elected, he put together an 11-man commission under the direction of former Attorney General George Wickersham. They formed the Wickersham Commission. The Wickersham Commission... The Wickersham Commission uh, was really about a study of law enforcement in general. It wasn't supposed to be specifically a study on prohibition, but prohibition was, after all, the major issue before the commission. In fact, the, the commission was called um, the National Commission on Law, Observation, and Enforcement. Now, its objective was to study and to recommend changes to the 18th Amendment. and to observe police policies within the states. And the commission would be overwhelmingly critical of the police. Um, stories are told often of the, the fact that the police would raid a speakeasy, which of course was the, replace, was, which was the replacement of the bar, the speakeasy. People would go up you know, secretly and drink in cellars, in living rooms, in parlors, and all over. Invariably, they would raid these posh places, and there would be the mayor and the sheriff. And one time, they they loaded they they raided the 
the um, biggest speakeasy in Detroit. Local congressman was there. So it was obviously, it was a failure. No question about it. However, incredibly, all 11 members of the Wickersham Commission recommended that prohibition continue. That simply more money should be poured into the program. And Frank Adams of the New York Post wrote the following poem. Prohibition is an awful flop. We like it. It can't stop what it's meant to stop it. We like it. It left a trail of graft and slime. It don't prohibit worth a dime. It's filled our land with vice and crime. Nevertheless, we like it. We're for it. So by 1930, with the onset of the Great Depression, despite the fact there has been some drop in cirrhosis of the liver, and other diseases brought on by alcohol, and despite the fact there's been a drop in um, violence within the, within the family unit, it's pretty clear that prohibition is a failure. In fact, work of the WCTU has been somewhat preempted by the Women's Organization for Reform of Prohibition. And the leader in this particular uh, movement was a lady by the name of Pauline Sabin. She argues that repeal would protect the families from corruption, violence, crime, and the underground drinking the results from prohibition. Now, there were many heroes. There were a number of heroes of prohibition. And I want to mention just a few of them by name. There was Frank Hamer, a former Texas Ranger who was responsible for corralling many violators along the Texas-Mexican border. He was only briefly in the he was only briefly in the uh, in the movement. Then there was um, another hero, was a gentleman by the name of um, Cherokee Tom Three Persons. He was a Cherokee from the state of Oklahoma, and they said that when he went after a bootlegger, it was though three persons, not one person, uh, was trying to settle the score. And then, of course, there were Izzy and Moe, Izzy, Isidore Einstein and Moe Smith from New York City, who confiscated over $7 million worth of booze between 1920 and 1925. These two people alone, they, they disguised themselves as, as um, 
vegetable sellers as working men, and they go into these places and they would they would they would they would um, confiscate the liquor. They even went into the Democratic Convention in 1924, uh, disguised as Kentucky delegates, <clears throat> but they found only soda pop. As the Depression worsened and the need for government, oh, but the most, I'm sorry, I missed the most important person. The most important person, the biggest hero of Prohibition, was Elliot Ness of the Untouchables. In 1930, the Treasury Department divided responsibility for doing something about the gangsterism into two areas. There were the units that would go in and break up the speakeasies. And then, of course, there would be the taxing wing, the people who would go after violations of the, of the um, 18th Amendment, the, 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 the taxing arm of the, of the um, aspect of, of the income making that was going on as the result of the, as, as the, result of the extra legal activities that were taking place. Um, and the person who was responsible for going in and, 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 and raiding these, raiding these uh, uh, speakeasies was Elliot Ness and the Untouchables. And he began, there was, a, there was a major event that occurred in 1929. It was called the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. It was, it was the peak of the gang wars that were going on in Chicago between <clears throat> Al Capone and Bugsy Moran. Al Capone lured his rival, Bugsy Moran, into a place by disguising his own gangsters as federal agents. So they came peaceably and they were massacred. Well, this couldn't continue. And so the Hoover administration, in fact, Secretary of the Treasury, Mullen himself, directed these two units. This was never handled by the Justice Department. It stayed in the Department of the Treasury. And so as of 19, between 1929 and 1931, um, Elliot Ness and the Untouchables began raiding these speakeasies in the larger cities. As the Depression worsened and the need for jobs, the need for government revenue continued it became pretty clear that the noble experiment, as Herbert Hoover had called it, had to come to an end. In the 1932 presidential campaign, the Republican Party, while admitting that prohibition had been pretty much of a failure, nevertheless continued its support of the 18th Amendment. The Democratic Party, however, under FDR, said that it was time to bring it to an end. In February of 1933, therefore, the, in the waning days of Congress, the Congress that would go out as of March the 4th, a progressive Republican by the name of John James Oh, goodness, it's terrible that I've forgotten his name. Um, 
excuse me, I've, I've, I've forgotten the man's name. He was a, a, a Republican from Wisconsin. Passed, shepherded through the Senate the um, 21st Amendment to the Constitution. Let me read that amendment to you. Section 1. The 18th article of amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. Section 2. The transportation or importation into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the law thereof is hereby prohibited. In other words, state law, the states were still allowed to be dry if they so chose to be dry. This article, and again you have that, you have that deadline, this article shall be inoperated unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution of the United States in convention. Now, it's interesting. When they repealed prohibition, they didn't send it before the state legislatures because they knew that there were a lot of prohibitionists in those legislatures. They asked the states to form conventions. And the states formed conventions, and these conventions consisted of the population. And the population, er, and, the, and the amendment of course, eventually would be passed. And I'll, I'll get to that in, in, in just a moment. Meanwhile, there was the... Um, FDR took office on March the 4th of 1933, and an amendment to the Prohibition Law was passed. It was called the um, Colin Harrison Act. And that raised the alcohol level of beer from 0.05 to 3.2%, I think 5% by volume. Accordingly, on the FDR signed it into law on the 22nd of December, 1933. And um, as of April the 22nd, April the 8th, I'm sorry, of 1933, uh, you could drink beer. Some called it near beer. But beer was available. And Anheuser-Busch sent a case of beer to FDR at the White House. On September the 5th of 1933, Utah, despite protests from the head of the Church of Latter-day Saints, became the 36th state to pass the 21st Amendment, which, of course superseded the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, and the era of prohibition was over. Most of the things that I read in preparation for my presentation tonight were, of course, highly critical of the implementation of prohibition, as, as is understandable. However, I think it's important to try to look at history 
through the eyes of people who passed the legislation, who felt it was important. As I say, we today have the comfort of medical science, of communication, of breaks in our schedule for entertainment. They had very little. If something, went, if something happened to a child, many of them felt that it probably happened as a result of God's punishment for something that they had did. And if they were drinkers, they felt that they were punished for drinking. They didn't have the things that we have today. They were vastly ignorant of the world around them. Most of them, isolated from the world community, never really understood the mores of people with whom, within a generation, they would be more familiar with. I want to go back just once more to the population changes in the United States. Level zero, general option five items. Sorry about that. But I want to go back just briefly to the population. I've already indicated that in 1900 we had about 76 million people. By 1910, we had 92,407 people. By 1920, we had 106 million people. By 1930, we had 123,076,000 741. And by the time prohibition was repealed, we had 125,158,763. Many, 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 many more people interacting with one another than used to be the case. America was changing. I want to leave you with this thought. Every generation has the right to be satisfied with what it's created with the kind of society that it seeks to create, especially when that society looks to overcome some of the mistakes of the past. But we never know what future generations are going to think of what we thought of ourselves and the things that we did to improve our society. The people who passed and sought to administer prohibition were for the most part, despite their prejudices, well-meaning. They sought to protect themselves and their families. And the fact that it failed is simply a matter of history. I thank you very much. Ed, what an outstanding presentation. I, I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. It was really quite revealing. We thank you so much. Let's see if we have Bonnie's put her drink down and everybody's in Lynn is happy over here. Let's see if we have any questions from our audience, please. Those who do not have a microphone, hit F8, write your question and enter, and we'll try to read it. And Tall Guy says he's drinking a sarsaparilla up here. Okay, let's see if we have any questions. I think I'll start. I have had this question from almost the very beginning. 
It's interesting to me that prohibition ended during the Depression at a time when people needed solace, at a time when they needed somewhere to escape and something to escape into. Was there a thought that since people were poorer then that they wouldn't have the money to buy alcohol if prohibition was eliminated? Or did was the thinking that maybe they needed to have it back because they deserved some kind of relief from all of the trials and tribulations they were faced with on a daily basis? I don't think that... I don't think people's needs were the reason that prohibition was that prohibition that prohibition uh, prohibition was repealed. I think it was more the market. Um, there was a lady today that sent me an article from Slate magazine. Um, I'm trying to remember the author. Oh, the author was Professor Deborah Plum. And she wrote, she found information saying that the federal government had, had deliberately poisoned um, the alcohol that was available to the poorest Americans in 1926 and 1927. Um, you know, some of, the, some of the alcohol that was provided for the poor was, of course, provided by trying to renature, denatured alcohol. And in many instances that was um, that was disaster. Because it, as I say, one of one of the results of prohibition was uh, essentially the poisoning of the American people because in you know in, in some cases not everybody knew how to make good liquor. They told themselves they did. But uh, I, I don't I don't know that it was the if I understand your your, your question correctly, um, right Bonnie, I, I don't think it was prohibition. It was the idea that the poor needed a better quality of liquor that, that ended prohibition. Hi, Ed. This is Don. I hope you can hear me. Um, did you? This was an excellent presentation, by the way, a lot of new information, but do you, what parallels do you see between the Volstead Act, etc., and today's drug laws and some efforts to, to change them? I think the major difference between today's drug laws is again the market. Um, I think the people who 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 violate who violated the law during prohibition had proportionally not in absolute terms but proportionally more money than Say, for example, kids who like marijuana to be a, um, uh, you know, a legal drug, or those who, I mean, for those who want other illicit things to be legal. So I, I don't think there's the market for those things uh, that there was for for alcohol once it was passed, because again, they, they ignored they ignored vast segments of society. You know, and I mentioned uh, that the 1928 presidential campaign was between Herbert Hoover and Al Smith. And, of course, Hoover won the election overwhelmingly. But what happened, one of the results of the election was that Al Smith won the 12 largest cities in the country. And this was unheard of, that there was still enough of a rural vote to, um, for Hoover to be able to carry the election. 
So you had increasing numbers of immigrants moving in and, and maturing within the United States. I really am embarrassed that I can't remember that senator, the United States senator from Wisconsin who, who um, proposed the 21st Amendment. That's, that's embarrassing. And I don't think it was La Follette babbling Bob. But <laughs> okay. Uh, and I wondered, um, you may have touched on, I think you did, but the suffragettes, did they just all of them, or well, you hate to say all, but a great majority of them um, support the concept of prohibition? Did they come uh, strongly for that, or or what? What was their position, please? Two answers to that question. First of all, I think probably the I would say that probably a plurality, a plurality, if not a majority. Um, there were probably some suffragettes that were simply interested in getting the vote. Oh, you know, there might have been a slim majority that were for it. By the way, the senator was John James Blaine, John, John James Blaine of Wisconsin. He was, incidentally, um, um, a follower of Robert La Follette. He was, a, he was, a, he was um, a progressive Republican. He supported um, Al Smith in 1928. He supported Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1932. He lost his congressional seat in 32, but his name was John James Blaine. And it was, I just didn't pick it up when I was going over my notes. Well, my questions, I guess, are more of a, come from a more of a social context, I guess, having been a social work major in college. But one of the things that I would like to know, and you may not have the answer to this, and I would be intrigued to know if you do, is they obviously had some idea of how damaging alcohol was for the body because you mentioned cirrhosis of the liver. But what did they do with people who, when prohibition started, were alcoholics. Of course, we all know about DTs and uh, delirium tremens, of course, and things like that. How did they handle people who were alcoholics who had no way of getting alcohol? Of course, you have uh, medical marijuana these days for people in, in some cases to help with pain and with certain diseases, I suppose. But did they have any way of dealing with people who were uh, and had become alcoholics who really couldn't live without it? Well, I think you probably went to a sanitarium, Bonnie, uh, if you could afford a sanitarium. Otherwise, it, it was, I mean, if you were an alcoholic, it was seen as a punishment, a violation of your faith. Um, drunkenness was seen as a moral problem, not, as we see it today, as, as a disease. We see it, we understand that, in the best way that I describe it, we understand today that People respond to alcohol the way they do based on their body chemistry. Some people can tolerate alcohol and some people can't. And um, I think back then, if, if, you, if you suffered from alcoholism, if you couldn't afford to go to a sanitarium, well, you just had to suffer. It was, it was God's punishment for you being unfaithful to those moral values that, that had been inculcated into you. Ed, uh, this is Don, and I know that when I was a social worker in the 1960s that uh, they had a 90-day detox thing at the state hospital. I was in Southern California. It was Patton State Hospital, and a lot of my alcoholic clients, I had a disabled caseload, not blind, and uh, they, they, they'd, go in, they'd disappear there for 90 days and come back. And uh, we, uh, 
I don't know when they got rid of that, of course, with the new laws and uh, so on, but I understand that the hospitals, uh, if they could walk away from there and, and stay and not get caught in the first few days, that they never went after them. But uh, that was the treatment they got, and they dry out. And it takes about 90 days, I guess, if you have the DT. Well, I think that there are always ways that they could get alcohol if they really wanted it. They could go into a speakeasy. They could attempt to make their own beer. Um, if they were in a rural place, there was always somebody that knew somebody that had a still. Um, I don't think the American public wanted to do without alcohol because the speakeasies, uh, you know, before you knew it, people had speakeasies going and could work out um, getting booze. I think, you know, this is how uh, a good deal of the mafia started. There was a lot of bootlegging across the, um, from Canada to here. And uh, people were able to work out ways. Maybe somebody had a bottle for medicinal purposes because if their doctor told them that they could take uh, liquor for, uh, for uh, medicinal purposes, they were able to get it. Um, so I'm sure many did without, but I think the people that wanted it really were able to get it. Yeah, Joni makes a very good point, and that is that, um, and again, I mentioned it briefly and probably didn't give it enough emphasis, um, medicinal alcohol was permissible under the Volstead Act. And of course, the people such as Wayne Wheeler were very, very suspicious of that. But the uh, House of Delegates of the American Medical Association insisted that they have the right to to um, uh, prescribe medicinal, medicinal alcohol, and you can be sure that a lot of doctors did. You can, and you know, and, and we go back to the we go back to the enforcement problem, where so many policemen, you know, were underpaid. So many um, prohibition agents were underpaid, and this, of course, meant that they were corruptible. And, and none of these things was, was really taken into, into uh, account by the Wayne Wheelers and, and the um, Francis Willards and the people who supported prohibition. Um, and some of the, you know, again, some of the liberal, some of the liberal perform, uh, reformers, I, I believe, I believe that uh, Robert La Follette supported prohibition. I would guess that, it's a, I think it's a reasonable guess, that Theodore Roosevelt you know, he was quite a Puritan. I mean, he was in favor of, of many of the liberal reforms, but he was a teetotaler. He was a member of the Dutch Reformed Church. So many of our political leaders were old-time, um, and again, I keep, don't seem to pick on the Protestant faith, because I'm one myself, but it's old-fashioned religion, and many, 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 many Americans believed in it. I have one last question, and then I will be quiet. I'm curious, and I guess this might have to do with the marketplace as well, or maybe perhaps even go back to maybe feelings that people had left over from the Civil War and not wanting to create a problem that uh, might cause, cause great tension and arouse a lot of terrible feeling and, and sever one part of the country from the other again, or perhaps maybe the... Uh, 
cigarette companies had more clout than, than alcohol companies or producers did. But was there ever a time when the same thing was contemplated about cigarettes as um, there was um, about prohibition of alcohol? Um, somebody said clicked off. I mean, I hope I didn't bounce somebody, but just to respond. I don't, I think we've learned our lesson from prohibition too well. And Bonnie, it's always good to have you chat. You don't need to worry about being quiet. Um, I think we've learned our lesson from prohibition. I mean, you, you create a black market. You know, you increase the likelihood of crime. And so... I doubt very seriously that we will ever see an absolute ban on tobacco. Um, obviously, the places where you can consume tobacco are narrowing all of the time. Now, some people have, and this is some of the material that I read on in preparation for tonight, some people suggested that had they not instituted prohibition in the way they did, and they had continued to educate children in the public schools and so forth uh, against the use of alcohol. People, the prohibition might have been much, much more successful. It might not have come back with the vengeance that it did. You know, people don't like to be told what they can't have. It's that simple. And that was probably the big mistake with prohibition. Had states continued, you know, some of the states, for example, that were dry, remember I said that, in, that by the time that the, um, the prohibition was passed, that 19 of the 48 states, which made up more than half of the population of the United States, were dry. But some of those states would allow you to import Alcohol. Oh, by the way, one one of the uh, one of the the, the uh, more positive aspects, if you will, of prohibition was the invention of the um, the invention of uh, NASCAR. You know, in the South and the in you know, the areas where moonshine was made. Um, you know, the rural farmers and so forth that were that were making the moonshine, and were um, taking taking it. They're trying to get it away from the revenuers, but. When you began to soup up their cars and uh, to outrun the revenuers. Remember, remember, the, remember that prohibition was, was, was administered by the Internal Revenue Service. And so they became known as, the, the federal agents became known as revenuers, not as G-men. Uh, in fact, it's interesting, the, the Bureau of Investigation, which was the major law enforcement arm of the Justice Department under... J. Edgar Hoover after 1924. Hoover didn't want any part of, in, of, of uh, enforcing prohibition. And so he didn't do it. Kept it away from the Bureau of Investigation. It became the Federal Bureau of Investigation in 1945. And um, the, um, the Prohibition Bureau eventually became um, the alcohol, fi firearms, alcohol, and tobacco in the 1970s. So, again, um, people don't like to be told. It's that simple. Ed, Mark, uh, Rhoda's Mark. 
How you doing? A uh, couple things just to add on. All right, the country was very full of alcoholics, especially in your major cities. All right, alcohol was very easy to make. Your immigrants had a history of making wine and making other alcohol. The workers on the way home from work, especially after payday, would always stop at the bar because that was customary. And a lot of times their salaries never made it home to take care of the wife and kids. All right. Uh, quality, most of the time, was poor, right, especially during Prohibition. That's why we always called it bathtub gin, and many people died because the alcohol was terrible. The good alcohol was imported from places like Canada that made things like Seagram's Crown Royale and other things that came into the country from Canada. All right. There is, all right, an alcoholic is going to drink no matter what, all right, whether it's legal or not legal. All right. Uh, we've made things right into our American culture. For instance, Johnny Appleseed is said to be, you know, going around planting apples. They weren't eating apples. They were cider apples that were made to hard cider and Applejack. It wasn't for eating. And he was mellow because he was usually bombed when he was going around. All right. There's a lot of major, major money that went from alcohol and now it's in and has been for quite a while in drugs all right for instance the number one crop in california all right is marijuana that's the number one crop much more money involved in that than in alcohol all right there's quite a bit that's going on we haven't learned our lesson we're doing the same thing with drugs as we did with alcohol you can't stop it but you can control it if you're wise enough to do it all right, medical marijuana is a major good step. By the way, that gentleman is the husband of my best friend, um, Mark Leibowitz from, from um, Cedar Grove, New Jersey. Didn't know you were here, Mark. Anyway, okay. Uh, I, there's nothing I can add to that, but Mark is essentially right. Yes, Ed, uh, speaking of kind of the same subject, before I do, though, uh, talking about the quality of the alcohol, the, 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 they used to call places also blind pigs because the uh, moonshiners that made this stuff, the way they tested whether the alcohol was fit for human consumption was to feed it to their pigs. If they went blind, it wasn't. So that's how that got the name. But I was wondering, it, right now, because of the drug situation, uh, did... Uh, where our prisons in California here, anyway, are overflowing. I, I understand they're not in New York, but um, uh, it's created a tremendous problem. Did they have a similar problem during Prohibition? Did they have he very heavy prison sentences? Oh, I just want to say hi to Mark. Mark, I'm from uh, Edison. Okay, let's see what Ed has to say. Was Were, were the prisons overcrowded as here uh, now today, Ed? Okay, I was trying to get in. I wasn't sure I was going to be allowed to get in there for a second. Um, yes, um, that was an increasing problem. I don't think it was the problem to the extent that the prison situation as it exists here in California at the time. Um, there were many more charges dropped than convictions made, but still, again, by the time of the... the the onset of the depression. There were too many people in jail for 
a violation of the, of the Volstead Act. Um, what they tried to, in some cases, what they would do, oh, that is a wonderful story. I've got to tell you this story. It's a great, great story. I mean, there, there, there were many attempts to you know, have suspended sentences and shortened sentences and, and, and stuff like that. Many years ago, about, well, more years than I hate to think of. <laughs> One night in the early 1970s, I was listening to, you remember the, uh, the television show host, David Forst, David Forst, you know, who interviewed, who did the, you know, the Nixon interviews after he left office. But David Forst was, was interviewing Bing Crosby. And Bing Crosby was telling about the time that uh, he was stopped um, at the end of a date by, by a policeman who gave him the summons to go to court. He was, he'd been doing a little drinking, and, 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 and the policeman um, noticed the alcohol in his breath. And uh, he said he gave him a summons, and of course he had to go to court. And he said, the day, he said, the day I showed up in court, he said, he said I was dressed for the golf course. He had loud socks on and stuff like that. And I said, you know, I, you know, I figured I'd go and I'd get lectured by the judge, maybe a little fine. But he said, this, this judge apparently took, especially the drinking on the part of young people, very seriously. And he asked me why I was dressed for the golf course. And, being as it said, you know, I told him, is, you know, I know it's the law, but nobody pays any attention to it. And the judge said, Mr. Crosby, you've got 30 days to pay attention to it. <laughs> and so he was, he was taken down to the lockup for 30 days. I don't remember what he said his fine was. Um, he was then a singer with the Paul Whiteman band, and of course they'd, they'd, they'd bring him pie and coffee every night. He said it was a rather pleasant incarceration. But he said, you know, I, I went to court with the idea that this, that, you know, they weren't going to enforce it. But they did. And I spent 30 days. Well, by the end of the Depression, or by the end of the, the 1920s, into the early 1930s, there were just too many of them. And I think there were a lot of suspended sentences and so forth. Okay, I think we have time for one or two more questions. Let me say, for my friend Joni, she'll remember that cigarette companies sponsored all the many of the great radio shows and doctors who give testimony to how wonderful cigarettes were. And then later, of course, they, they started banning them off TV sponsorships. And, and so Ed was right when he said you know, the tobacco window is narrowing. But let's have one or two more questions. It is getting late in the East here, I think, for our Eastern friends. So let's see what we have, please. And Mark, you're a very bright guy, very interesting to, to listen to. Yes, I have maybe, it's, I'm not sure if it's quite a question or an observation, but were the various states... Once they started returning uh, liquor to the, uh, you know, the consumer market again, given the choice as to how to handle it, I know in uh, the state of Iowa, for example, for a long time, you could only buy liquor through the state stores where they were, you had a book and various things uh, to keep track of how, you know, what you were buying or how much. And, and uh, across the river in the, um, Nebraska, you could you know go to the grocery stores or the department stores and could buy uh, liquor, just you know wine or anything, just in the stores. And is that still the same way, or is it pretty much now that everybody can buy it, you know, every place? 
Hi. Mark here. Let's see. Let's hear from the uh, presenter first, Mark, and then certainly you're recognized. Ed, any thoughts on that? I remember the old package stores, yeah, in Iowa. Yeah. Um, states, I read, the, I read the 21st Amendment, and what it basically said was that if the states want to be dry, they can be dry. If the states want to import liquor, they can import liquor. Um, most of the states had, I think the last state to repeal, to, to stop being dry, uh, was the state of Mississippi in 1966. That was the last state to, to allow the, um, or, or to disallow the sale of alcohol within its, within its borders. And I'm sure they had plenty of moonshiners. Um, the state of Kansas, and uh, in fact, um, Bonnie, I wonder what, what Matt Dillon did uh, at the Long Branch. They were the, almost the first state to ban alcohol in 1881. Carrie Nation was, you've heard her name, I'm sure. Carrie Nation was part of the reform movement. I'm sure she was a member of WCTU. Um, and my guess is that in, I mean, my, my, in, 18, in 1881, um, Kansas barred, and I wonder what happened to the Long Branch, Kitty's Long Branch uh, bar, was it called, uh, saloon. But anyway, but in, in 1987, the state of Kansas finally allowed what they call liquor by the drink. Uh, in many states, you could, you could buy alcohol in stores and so forth, in state stores in some cases, uh, but not until 1987 were Kansans allowed to go to a bar, from what I understand. I live in North Florida, and um, so we get a lot of... South, South Georgia news, and the, within the last couple of years, there's some cities in South Georgia, um, or one or two cities that have repealed their blue laws for Sunday, so you could buy liquor by the drink on Sundays. And I wouldn't be surprised if um, for Georgia there'd be some, uh, still have some, just a few dry counties. Oh, absolutely. Let's see. I think I heard Mark. Let's give him the final comment before we. Uh, adjourn here this evening. This is just so good, so exciting. Okay, Rich, very quickly, I did go to school in Iowa, even though I'm from New Jersey, and they had state stores, but you could buy wine and beer in grocery stores, in supermarkets, and almost any place, but hard liquor was state stores. That was separate. And we forget that going back to revolutionary times, Everybody had to mind their P's and Q's, which were pints and quarts. We didn't drink water. We didn't drink soda. We drank something that was brewed or distilled. All right. Boston Massacre came down after a very heated argument in the pubs. All right. The more they talk politics, the more they consume, the more heated the arguments got. You don't charge a bayonet when you all you have is sticks and stones if you're sober. Yeah, the the reason that they had uh, well rum rations is what they used to call them in the in the militias um, was because the water was so foul to drink, um, so they um, drank distilled liquors or mostly rum, um, and I, I guess that was pretty much uh, the drink of the day. Well, I remember once uh, in our organization we were looking for a lawyer, 
And they said, well, what do you want? Do you want a nice Catholic, honest lawyer or a good-drinking Jewish lawyer? Three guesses who we chose, a good-drinking Jew. He was wonderful. We had a great time with him. With that, Ed, I want to thank you so very much. What an out- I can tell you did great research here. This was so well put together, and we thank you so very much and look forward to your next presentation. And we thank you very, very much. Well, two things, Bob. Um, it was Ruth Ann last time who suggested that we go. First of all, I need to apologize. I'm embarrassed uh, for having forgotten John James Blaine's name. Uh, should have. I mean, it, near the end of it, I'm, I, I am embarrassed about that because it was a major part of my presentation. But um, uh, beyond that, um, it was fun preparing for. I've learned a lot. I know much more about prohibition than I did, but of course, there's a lot I don't know. And uh, some of the points were raised by Joni and by Mark and, and by Don and, and by Bonnie that some are some things that, that I didn't think of. And Lynn, I guess, I guess you're the one from North Florida. Um, anyway, I thank all of you for having the patience to, uh, to listen to my presentation tonight. <laughs>